Welcome to 1991 Movie Rewind, a podcast where we watch and review every movie released in 1991, from the all-time greatest classics to the critically panned and everything in between. We will rediscover forgotten fan favorites and uncover hidden gems as we explore the depths of directed video. Join us in our celebration of the fun, unique, and diverse films of this highly underrated year. This week, we watched Company Business. for joining us on 1991 Movie Rewind. In company business, former CIA agent Sam Boyd, played by Gene Hackman, is brought back in to handle one last job. He's being asked to orchestrate a prisoner exchange that would send Peter Grushenko, played by Mikhail Baryshnikov, back to Russia and bring an American agent home. During the handoff, Sam notices something is terribly wrong and escapes with Peter. Now the two are on the run and trying to elude both countries. Screenplay by Nicholas Meyer, directed by Nicholas Meyer, and released on September 6, 1991. Have you seen Company Business before? No. Have you heard of Company Business before? (laughs) No, me either. It's such a generic name. And, I don't know. Yeah, I was... Well, I don't know if you read, like, all the trivia. I did, yeah. This is is sort of a... uh, botched production yeah like it seems like no one wanted this movie to happen <laughs> it's yeah it's, it's a weird situation where it seems like they greenlit the movie without a finished script that's coming from nicholas meyer himself he has a memoir or biography or something that he wrote called the view from the bridge memories of star trek and a life in hollywood because he's also written three of the star trek movies uh, and you know, including 1991's Star Trek VI, and he's directed some of that stuff as well. And he says, "Yeah, this moved forward without a finished script, and it really was the the death knell of the movie." I can definitely understand. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then no one like not Gene Hackman was like not into it and neither was Mikhail Bershnikov. Yeah, I guess he refused to do publicity for the movie. Yeah. As well. But yeah, I mean Gene Hackman was he tried to get out of it. <laughs> he tried to of, back out, but I don't think it was yeah, because to, of the story. I think it's no, just because he had been doing too many movies. Yeah, the reason why he was wanted to back out was because he was doing like four back to back productions and he just didn't want to do this yeah i mean keep in mind he's a 61 year old man at this point and i i know that because i looked it up to compare how old he is here versus like tom cruise now doing like a mission impossible thing because they're both spy movies yeah and tom cruise is 60 years old as of this year and hackman was 61 at the time that this movie was made he just seems like he's forever 60. He does. In my mind. Yeah, like even in The French Connection, he, he still he looks like a 60-year-old man at that time. Yeah. Even though that was like 20 years earlier. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Um, he would have been like our age, but he looked 60. Yeah. It, it, time is a weird thing. Yeah. And then I also read that this was a working title was supposed to be called Dinosaurs, which mm-hmm. is even worse. There's a few different alternate titles. I don't know what they were actually considering, but company business is something that was kind of slapped on at the last minute from what it sounds like. 
um, yeah, dinosaurs was considered, and there's an allusion to that in one of the scenes where uh, Grushenko's daughter is talking to Sam in a restaurant with a giant dinosaur skeleton overlooking it. Uh, yeah, in some restaurant. I don't in... know the name of the place, but it looked really cool. It was like a really nice looking location. Um, and it was alluding yeah, to the fact like that they museum. are... Yeah, it looked like a museum. But it did, posed yeah. as a restaurant. Yeah. Like maybe it was in a museum. It's like a you know how they have those cafes yeah, like cafe, attached yeah. to it. But this was like fancy. But dinosaurs refers to the fact that these are both aging basically retired agents and so they're, you know, a dying breed or something like that. Um obviously they couldn't use dinosaurs because there was a TV show. Yes, there was a very going popular to. TV show. <laughs> come out soon or, <laughs> so this is even yeah. before you know the 2004 what like 2004 cgi dinosaurs movie by disney as well um other alternate but, titles yeah that one just would not have made sense either no it wouldn't have been a good title for it here's here's the other ones that, that are listed on imdb patriots okay like, very generic false passports eh. that's, <laughs> and russian roulette I think false passports out of all of them is probably the best. Because it's just, they literally... I don't use... know. Yeah, because they use false... None of them are good. None of them are good names. Company business. If you don't understand that company is referring to CIA, just sounds like other people's money parody movie. Yeah, it's... Just call it... CIA business. I have no idea. Yeah, it sounds like a little kid who grows up and like runs a company, right? Like, oh, I'm gonna go put on my suit and tie and go run yeah, the company I, business. Yeah, my my business is called company business. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm very busy. I have a lot of company business to take care of. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not a good title, and it wasn't. It wasn't Nicholas Meyer's choice, from what it sounds like. Uh, a lot of this apparently was not. The final cut was taken away from him as well by the studios. This had a massive budget of $18 million, considering what this movie is. That seems like a massive budget. Yeah. It made 1.5, which is honestly surprising that it made that much, uh, putting it at 158 on our list overall. So, yeah, I mean, this got a theatrical release, and I never heard of it. Never heard of it at all. It's supposed to be sort of like a spy comedy. I don't even know where the comedy was. I don't know. I mean, there were a couple like parts where I think they were trying to be funny, but none of it. Yeah, like I think Barishnikov is was trying to try out some comedy by saying. I don't know if it was meant like he wanted, you know, like improved in or if it was meant for him to be the funny one as opposed to Gene Hackman being the serious one. It could be. I mean, some of it but, also seemed a little bit situational. Like, I think when Gene Hackman is leaving that, um, I, I don't remember which location it was, but there's like these four guys who are just standing around waiting for him mm -hmm. to follow him in Paris. I think just the idea that they're following so closely to him is supposed to be a joke. You know, I think it's that kind of... It's like, oh, look at how obvious it is that he's being 
trailed by these guys. Look at how stupid they are about like not keeping distance. Oh, okay. like, you know that kind of stupidity, uh, stupidity, um, or even things like um, here. I wrote down this part because there's this one part where they're they're hiding out at a like they just escaped everything and then they go to hide out at this drag show cabaret. Yeah. Um, so at one point, the guy who's trying to organize everything says, "Patch me into Washington," and then you cut to this drag show or cabaret, which I think was kind of meant to be something of a commentary on Washington. Oh. Like, that's the kind of humor I think was supposed See, to be in this yeah, movie. yeah, this is, like, over my head, because I don't know anything about, like, Cold War or whatever. Like, it's a lot of weird situational stuff. <laughs> like, um... Like, Cold War humor. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's R- like we were, was wearing a, uh... We were, like, children when this was ending definitely uh, and even uh, we'll get into the political stuff in a second here i think as well but i mean he was wearing like a grushenko was wearing a, a gorby man jacket uh-huh. so like that's also a thing um i think the fact that gene hackman was supposed to have an israeli passport was also supposed to be political humor at the time there's a lot of stuff like that um i think the funniest possible scene is the opening scene where he's doing the espionage and like infiltrating this building to take pictures of these top secret documents. Yeah, and there's like hackers or something. Yeah, and there's like 30 security guards chasing him down and he repels down the building. And then you see this, you know, young kid who talks about how he just hacked into the computer and got the same stuff. And then um, Gene Hackman steals his information or idea and goes into the boardroom and presents that kid's evidence as his own. And it's a big reveal that it was cosmetics company. It's, you know, corporate espionage. I think that's situationally humorous, or supposed to be. And that's, like, the funniest part, and it wasn't funny. Yeah, I just didn't get it. Like, it, yeah, yeah like this big gray. top secret thing, and, it, oh, haha, all this big secrecy around makeup. Yeah, and then even him making the call back for when he met up with Grishenko's daughter. Yeah. He was like, oh, you're wearing, I don't even know, the shade. <laughs> like, yeah, Maxine Gray, number 35, whatever. Like, shade number whatever, Lavender Sunrise, or whatever it was called. Yeah, exactly. And she's like, oh, you really know? I don't know, I was, okay, like, fine, all right. Yeah. Uh, but, like Maxine Gray is such a, it's a huge cosmetic company. I mean, in I this guess. world, yes. I don't. Are, they're not real, right? Nope. Well, uh, all the other thing that kind <laughs> I don't know. No, they're. Yeah. I don't think so. At least they're not like huge, like Revlon or whatever. Yeah. But um, the, the one thing that did make me laugh, I don't know, was meant to be funny. The receptionist, her phone were like the lips phone. Mm. Like lips, yeah. They were in the shape of lips. Yeah. And I thought that was funny. And if that was intended to be funny, then okay, you Good got job. <laughs> <laughs> you got one. <laughs> you got one. Because <laughs> just you know, if you go to like any corporate office, like you know, you just have like the same basic phone. So her having this fancy red-lipped phone was funny. It's. Yeah, it's difficult to make a political 
comedy when politics are changing so rapidly at the time. And I think, like we were talking about earlier, we were kids and we wouldn't have understood, if we watched this, we wouldn't have understood some of the references. It's definitely meant for adults of the time because there's a lot of political talk, there's a lot of like allusions to different conflicts and different countries and dictators and stuff that I have ancillary knowledge of the names, but that's about it. Yeah. Just from so what you learned to... in history class, unless you did, like, a hardcore deep dive of the Cold War. Yeah, and it, the, one of the things that Nicholas Meyer is talking about is, like, going forward with a, without a finished script was suicide. And while on paper this appeared to be promising, in reality, we were all pulling in different directions. Uh, and there's, you know, part of the issue is that there was so much change in the world that was happening while they were making this movie that they could not even keep up. Mm. Um, one of the major things is that yeah, the, the movie was Wall. released in 1991 yeah. as the Soviet Union was ceasing to exist. So, yeah. like, the whole concept of, you know, these, you know, it's it's already outdated. Yeah, the Berlin Wall is another thing. Yeah, because the, they but, go to Berlin and they do mention, like, it's so weird to see Berlin without the wall up, you know? Yeah, it, and it made me think... How okay? Obviously, it was very new, right? Yeah, well, the yeah it went down in eighty. So they were so it's only two years honestly filming that, than... like, I don't know, either in nineteen ninety or early ninety one. So yeah. it's like a year, year and a half of it being so, taken down. So it is such a, a a strange, different time for that. And we've only had one other movie that's mentioned the Berlin Wall so far, which is yeah. Salmonberries. Yeah. And it's, I don't know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in this project going forward, just to, you know, like, movies that could potentially mention it and just don't, you know, like, that they didn't write that change into the script when they probably could have, hmm. um, or how additional movies handle this massive change in Germany. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it, this one just basically mentioned it in passing, and it became, I don't know, they it sounded like they wanted to make it a bigger plot point because they're talking about the transportation of the trains, the subway system going from yeah, west to east like or east to west. I don't know which way they were going. It kind of reminded me a little bit of like Zentropa or something. Yes. I mean, yeah, they that whole train. Um, I will say, like the cool parts of this movie are like the chase scenes when they're on the trains going like back and forth and running away from whoever and then even in the eiffel tower this movie is better than it should have been considering what nicholas meyer is saying about the production and how it was not a finished script there's a lot of competent aspects to this i think that the directing and cinematography especially are are competent you know really good use of shadows and light you know you got like a nice variety of angles and you know mixed perspectives and you know they're trying to make it visually interesting and and exciting like you said the chase scenes have something going on but even at its height of tension it still seems incredibly boring the plot's moving fast yeah but i feel like maybe it's just way too predictable for its own good even the tense moments feel like they focus on the mundane when like when they're doing the handoff there's like a 30, 45 second sequence of him unlocking the gate. Mm-hmm. 
I don't need to see all of that. I don't know. It doesn't, I don't know. So they focus on a lot of stuff and it just kind of drags the pacing down, even though the plot itself is moving relatively quick. It's about an hour and a half movie. And they go to multiple countries and have multiple things happen to them. But yeah, boy, and does it seem slower than it is. It's like they're on set, so that's really... Well, yeah. They're, they're on in, location. They're on location, yeah, not on set. Yeah. So it's cool to see Berlin during that time and even Paris. I think what also kind of is odd is... I'm not sure if you noticed this as well, but everything is, just seems super empty. Like when they're running down the streets, nobody yeah, is I on the streets. Yeah, I wonder if it... I mean, it's I don't know how tourism was, like, you know, late 80s, early 90s. I mean, but they I could have flushed it out with a couple of local extras to be walking uh, on the sidewalk, you know? But there's nobody. Even the Eiffel Tower is maybe, like, 10% full. That is, you would never see the Eiffel Tower that not, empty yeah. these days. Maybe yeah, it was that it way in one, but, yeah, maybe now. But, I don't know. We're sort of post-pandemic now so it's probably super packed again up there but yeah you wouldn't i don't know i mean even when okay i'm trying to think we only went to paris once and we did the eiffel tower yes once and it was full yeah it was super full and you have people riding elevators solo in this movie and you have a lot of walking room and a lot of dead space on the floor when the overhead shots so I'm just saying. I, yeah, I don't know. I understand know that how they closed down these locations like for filming, but they should have fleshed it out in to make it the more. The late 80s, early 90s. Filming. I'm not sure if they used the real life tower for these scenes, honestly. It, look, it, it looked, looked authentic. It looked like it because I remember those elevators. Yeah, they recreated it very well if they did not use the actual place. And that restaurant that. Well, okay. That's you, because I didn't go all the way to the top. Was right. there a restaurant at the top? I don't know. The restaurant that they went to in, at the end was not at the top. Oh. They were back down the elevator. So it that's was... That's ground floor. Oh, that's where the restaurant was? At, in the movie, yes. Okay, I thought I, there, it was there, No, there, there would not have been any room for a restaurant at the top. It's, you it's know, at the a very... spire. So it's very, very small space. Because that restaurant they went to is still there today. Yeah, it's... It's at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Oh, I thought mm-hmm. it was... Because when they were looking out the window, it looked like they were looking down in the restaurant. Mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I see what you're saying. That's why I thought it was on one of the levels. No, I don't think there's any room for a restaurant in any of those. That's what I was like. I don't maybe, remember maybe seeing like a restaurant. Maybe like the very, you know, very bottom. You know, I have like the four corners, and then you have like that very like. There's strip three. Of base. I, we well okay. Maybe there. I, I don't know. There's whatever. like three levels, and we well I only did one because I was too scared. And that's why I'm saying at the very top where they were, no way, no <laughs> way it'd be I'm that empty. That's why I'm asking you because you went to the higher level. Yeah, no way it'd be that empty. And I don't remember a restaurant, but it's still there to this day that's why but at the end of the movie it looked as if they were looking down yeah again it could have been that 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 you know the big base strip at that yeah at the first there's the first middle and then very top so it could have been anything is there i don't even know whoever's been to the eiffel tower (laughs) so let me know 
so yeah anyway i mean the movie like i said it goes a lot of different places it, it does and i don't think that they make any stupid moves either you know like but it's just all predictable it's like okay they understand that something's going wrong with this handoff and so they run away where they go and run away to makes sense i don't know like everything every step that they make seems to make sense and they also always understand both sam and grushenko are, are agents and so they both understand that the government is going to be expecting their moves and so it's a little bit of a cat and mouse but it's nothing you haven't seen before even probably at this time like you probably haven't you know yeah you you switch trains as they're both in motion which is interesting and, and it you know looks nice but it's not anything you haven't seen before they go and get fake passports mm-hmm. new identities nothing you haven't seen before and then you cut to the governments saying oh yeah they're going to do this they're going to do this they're going to do this you know it's staying one step ahead so it's, it's a smart movie but it's super expected i don't know yeah you i i knew that they were gonna work together and i knew that they were go like you know near the end where it seemed as if they were going to be working against each other like at the very end but sure where they're in the Eiffel Tower. it. But I was like, no, they're going to be working together to overcome, like, the CIA, I guess. Yeah, and the Russian government as well, yeah. just kind of working in tandem with them at a certain point. Alright, I think they have a separate level for this restaurant. Because it's, like, midway somewhere. Sure, yeah. Pull up a picture of the... We're talking about the Jules Verne restaurant, if anyone <laughs> yeah. wants to know. Yeah, pull up a picture of the actual Eiffel Tower and you should probably see where it would locate. It's probably, you know, like I said. It's at that first base. Yeah. There's three. That's Okay, yeah, because that's. But we didn't go on that base because maybe that was like a separate separate entrance. It might be almost all restaurant and maybe a gift shop or something. It's interesting that I. I mean, okay, they, they present some stuff in this movie that just doesn't resolve and i think that's probably because you know they went into this without a fully finished cohesive story in place i don't know if they had an outline like how did this get greenlit i don't know the studio that produced this did not do well and they're only it was mgm and pathé pathé so Uh, it was like a french and i think they stayed sort of afloat in 1991 because they they also did Thelma and Louise. Mm. I mean, maybe because... So, did they just so greenlit it because they were like, oh, Nicholas Mayer... Yeah, you got Nicholas Meyer and you got Gene Hackman attached. And they were like, just go ahead, we know it's going to be good. Right. And we don't even care what it is. Something like that, possibly. And you have Baryshnikov in there, too, who's... Try, you know, he's... He's, like, trying to... He's done some acting up to this point as well. He even had an Oscar nomination. Serious, yeah. You know, you, had, you have Oscar winner Gene Hackman for French Connection and soon to win another Oscar for Unforgiven. He's been nominated for Bonnie and Clyde, I Never Sang for My Father, and then later on Mississippi Burning. You have Mikhail Baryshnikov, who won the Oscar for Turning Point, but obviously best known as being a dancer. You know, he's like the most famous ballet dancer of all time, arguably. 
at least male-wise. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, he's won a Tony nomination for Metamorphosis as well. And so, you know, he's, he's done a lot, and he has done acting. Big, big name. Gene Hackman, big, big name. Nicholas Meyer, he has an Oscar nomination as well for this movie called The 7% Solution as a writer. You know, Emmy nominated for The Day After, which is an extremely controversial movie uh, at the time. Um, so, you know, you have this makings of a good movie and, you know, you need a finished idea of where you're going to head to make the comedy effective, to make the drama and the tension effective to make a spy thriller effective you need to have some unpredictable twists and turns and there's nothing that's unpredictable in this i think the only thing that's supposed to be unpredictable is the colonel who's running the show who turns out to be the bad guy yeah i mean but you know that from the very hear. start when he's introduced in shadows and puts a harsh light on himself saying no this has to be done yeah Okay, cool, you're the bad guy. I think the biggest turn of fate is, you know, Kurtwood Smith, who plays Elliot Jaffe in this one. He's Sam's handler, in a sense. And you think he's going to be the bad guy. He starts off as not the bad guy. He's on Sam's side. He does not know what's really going on with this whole handoff. and that's It's not really even worth getting into all of the political intrigue and like oh but this guy flipped and now he's an agent for Russia but now he's an American agent and he's probably you know double agent stuff like it's really I don't care I really don't um, but eventually Kurtwood's on the side of the CIA probably because he has to but whatever uh, where they're just trying to chase both of them down and, and capture them for whatever they need to do and then it just I don't know I just also didn't like that the movie just ended Oh, they're in the restaurant. Okay, yeah. The, Peter in the makes restaurant. the phone call and yeah, kind of exposes Colonel Grissom, and then the end. I I don't know if this was also supposed to be funny. So like at the end in the Eiffel Tower, you know, they're doing the whole chasing scene, and um, Brishnikov he gets shot. Like in the stomach. Yeah, there's a shootout. So they're they're trying to do this exchange where they send Brishnikov, Grushenko's daughter, who's been working with them to help them launder this money because there's two million dollars involved. We didn't talk about that at all. There's two million dollars involved that was part of this handoff, and they also kept the money but haven't spent it, and they're trying to find a way to launder it to keep it out of the government's hands now. And the daughter was going to help them with that because she has, like, business ties or whatever. She has company business ties. <laughs> not really technically company because it's not CIA. But um, and so, yeah, she gets captured by the Russians and the Americans both in tandem. And then, yeah, send the daughter down the Eiffel Tower. We'll bring Grushenko up. And then there's a shootout because somehow Sam Boyd is posing as the elevator operator at the Eiffel Tower. How that happened, I don't know. Yeah. Because they don't show like that. He planned this. Well, because, I mean, he also made a reservation at that restaurant. Yeah. Because they go time. straight in. They're like, do you have a reservation? He goes, yeah, it's under blah, blah, blah. John Jones, the alias that they haven't used yet. Yeah. 
Um, but I mean, obviously they can't show us why he becomes the elevator operator because it would ruin the reveal at the end when he yeah. turns around and does the shootout and kills like the major bad guy, Mike Flynn, um, played by Daniel Van Bargen, I think known best for a few episodes of Seinfeld, probably. <laughs> yeah, and um, so... And, and Grushenko gets shot, shot in, in tandem you know, by Mike at the same time. Yes, he's shot, and they just kind of, like, put a coat over him, and they go eat. Yeah, because they can't leave. People are going to be looking for them. And so they're like, we're going to wait till the heat dies down, basically. Yeah, but he's bleeding internally yes. and dying, possibly. Yes. <laughs> and they're like, I mean, this is probably meant to be funny. And they just sit down and talk future plans, and that's when Sam is saying... We should move to the Seychelles. Like, he kind of poses that. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, they can't oh, extradite yeah. us. And... and, but, I don't even, that's when Grishenko makes that phone call, and then they order, like, that um, drink, the Starka. Yeah, they, which is a big running joke, quote-unquote, in the whole thing, too. Yeah, well, like, when they first meet and, uh, get to Berlin together, they order Star... Well, Grishenko's like, have you ever had Starga or something like that? And it's, you know... It's like a whole big thing of like, oh, this isn't the best in the world, but I prefer it to the most popular or whatever. Yeah. Stoli. So, they, the, they... They start to bond while they're in Berlin over drinking Starka, and then at the end of the movie they order that same drink and just kind of like cheers and then the end and the end yeah we don't see them escape we don't see them on the island like in fx2 or fx1 i guess it is yeah um nothing like that it's i mean that kind of reminds me i mean i don't really i didn't really feel the relationship between hackman and brishnikov between sam and peter in this movie I mean, I get that they had to work together, but I didn't really feel the bonding between them. Yeah, so. it, this didn't seem buddy cop or whatever I don't yeah. want to say. Like, it's not cop. Yeah, we put it into our buddy movie category yeah, for the month, but it's, yeah. It's I like mean, cop versus prisoner. But it's forced buddies. Yeah, they're just working together because they both want, like, the same outcome and... But even at the end, when they're planning on still continuing their life together outside of Paris... I feel like Grishenko's like, we did what we did, and now he's probably yeah. like, I'm done. Now it just feels like they're just kind of <laughs> stuck together, and they're trying to tolerate each other. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, it, it is what it is. Uh, let's get into some of the cast and crew that we haven't mentioned already. We already talked about Nicholas Meyer. Like I said, we'll see him again in Star Trek VI, because he wrote that... Uh, Gene Hackman, we talked about him, Mikhail Brishnikov. Kurtwood Smith is Elliot Jaffe. He's going to be in a couple more 1991 movies. Oscar, Shadows and Fog, and Star Trek VI. He's best known for that 70s show, the upcoming that 90s show, Rambo Three, and also Robocop. Terry O'Quinn is an Emmy winner for Lost and also a two-time nominee for that. Also a Spirit nomination for The Stepfather. He's also going to be in the 1991 movies The Rocketeer, Shoot First, A Cop's Vengeance, and also The Last to Go, which is not on our list. 
And then uh, we got Geraldine Dannon as Natasha Grimaud, who is Grishenko's daughter. Uh, she's going to be in the 1991 movie The Old Lady Who Walked in the Sea. And also Catorce Estaciones, which is not on our list. She's been in other movies. Mostly she's a French actress. She's been in things like Kill the Referee and Jean's Tonic. And I do have a pausing on the credits this time around. A guy named Louis Epolito, who played Paco Gonzalez, the Colombian who's in the war room at the CIA at the beginning, who's funding the $2 million for this operation because of, you know, political intrigue. Yeah, all of the political intrigue was so... It didn't make a whole lot of sense because it's, it, at one point they're like, oh, this is very hush-hush, you have to do this solo because we can't devote any active agents to this thing because of whatever it is. But by the way, keep meticulous records of your expenses so we can reimburse you. Hmm. You know, I, and I'm, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be a joke too. Yeah. Or if I, that's... Like, we just didn't get it. <laughs> or if it's just like not thinking through what you're actually trying to present on screen. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Louis Epolito, he's going to be in the 1991 movie Switch as well. He's been in things like Lost Highway, Goodfellas, Predator 2. He's a former New York Police Department officer, and he was indicted in March 2005 with his partner for providing information about key witnesses and confidential informants to a crime family, a, a mob crime family. I'm not sure how to pronounce this. Lucchesi? L-U-C-C-H-E-S-E. Luches? Luchesi? Uh, they were charged with carrying out mob murders, turning over individuals to the, the Luchesi family as well. Uh, they were found guilty in April 2006. I think it's... Overturned Lu briefly. I think what? it's Luchesi. Luchesi? Okay. Uh, conviction was overturned on a technicality, but then reinstated in 2008. And in 2009, he was sentenced to life plus 100 years in prison, and he has since passed away in 2019. So a little pausing on the credits, slash... Crime. Entry into true crime. And obviously no awards to mention on this one. So, on to further true crime and pop culture. Okay, so on September 6th, 1991, this was a Friday... I asked you this and you didn't know who this person was. Um, this is a famous death. Donald Henry Peewee Gaskins, who was an American serial killer, was executed in the electric chair on this day at the age of 58 years old. Peewee Gaskins. So, okay, he was, a, he was an American serial killer. He was mostly from... South Carolina and I'm not going to go into his murders but he was he started he had like like most serial killers they had a really bad childhood and the reason why he got the name Peewee is because he was so short and skinny and scrawny and as a child into adulthood like he as an adult he was 5'4 130 pounds and he didn't even know who, what his real name was because everyone just called him Pee-wee his mm. entire life. He didn't even know what his real name was until he first got arrested when he was like a teen. Hmm. And he, I mean, he dropped out of school at the age of 11. He started doing all kinds of like burglaries, assaults. He, this is trigger warning, but I'm not, I... 
the crimes that he did do and the murders he did were like honestly sickening and I'm not going to talk about it. But I mean, there are like hundreds of crime, true crime podcasts. Like the one that I heard of was like years ago was when last podcast on the left did it and it was like a three-parter on him. And this was like back in 2016 or something. But um yeah, he was uh he also he he was mostly known for killing close friends and family members, hmm. which is disgusting. And he was also like a serial rapist. But he started his I don't know, he called them his uh I mean, he was in and out of, like, I don't know, did they call it ju- ju- any juvenile prison back then? Because he was in and out of that he, from, like, age 13 to whatever. And, he, I mean, he was also known as a carny, quote-unquote. Like, he would go from, like, carnival to carnival. Okay. And he was marrying young women who were, like, 13 years old. But he was like, first time he got married, I think he was 15 and he married a 13-year-old. His actual killings started in 1970 and it went until 1975. But uh, he was arrested with nine counts of murder after police found the bodies of <laughs> of several of his friends. Like, Because I think what... Pee-wee, well, I know, like, what he did, he kind of was, he, he was working with someone else near the end, like, in the late, in the mid-70s, and this friend sort of, like, ratted him out, because Pee-wee, he was kind of, like, boasting, like, oh, yeah, I killed this person, and he's buried in my backyard, like, he was just, like, going around. Yeah, advertising. Yeah, advertising, like, that he's killing people and then burying them and so his friend pretty much like ratted him out and told the police so they found bodies in his yard and that's what really got him arrested and at that time this was in 1976 so he was sentenced to death but he he later confessed to seven additional murders to avoid additional death sentences and his sentence was commuted to life with seven consecutive life terms in prison after the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the death penalty as unconstitutional. And while in prison, Pee-wee was hired by someone by the name of Tony Simo. He is the... I'm not going to go into these people because <laughs> I was like, there's too many people involved. And it's a I'm, long, complex yeah. story, yeah. He was hired by someone by Tony Simo, I think, Simo or Chimo, who was the son of Bill and Myrtle Moon. Bill and Myrtle Moon were both killed by another inmate in the same prison as Pee Wee, and that inmate's name is Rudolph Tyner. So, Tony Simo hired Pee-wee to kill his parents' murderer, since they were both in the same prison together. Okay. Pee-wee was able to form a relationship with Tyner, posing as a drug dealer and lacing 
drugs with rat poison and attempt to kill him, but that didn't work, I guess. Mm-hmm. And after that didn't work, he fashioned and made a homemade bomb. Apparently, he had, like, free reign in prison, too. guess so. And uh, he, so Pee Wee rigged a device similar to a portable radio that Tyner had in his cell. And he told Tyner that this would allow the both of them to communicate with each other between cells. And Pee Wee told Tyner to follow these instructions to, you know, hold this speaker up to your ear at this certain time. Mm. To, you know, hear me or whatever. Right, right. And then at that time, Pee Wee would detonate the explosives and that's what killed him. Hmm. And because of that, Pee Wee received the death penalty again for the murder of Rudolf Tyner. And while he was on death row, Pee Wee told his life story to a journalist and confessed to over 181 murders, hmm. including a murder of the daughter of the current South Carolina senator at the time. And Pee Wee said that he had a, quote, special mind that gave him permission to kill. And Pee Wee Gaskins was executed on September 6, 1991 at 1.10 a.m., he was the fourth person to die in the electric chair after the death penalty was reinstated in South Carolina. And his last words were, I'll let my lawyers talk for me. I'm ready to go. Huh. Yeah, I have not heard any of that, but it sounds like a very complex, yeah, intricate story of, of yes. <laughs> of his life and then just what happened while he was in prison. Yeah. He was also known as the meanest man in America, the hitchhiker killer, the redneck Charles Manson, which, okay. Uh, yeah. They, just, they don't want to assign some labels to people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And then moving on to TV, I guess. On the happier. Yeah. Happier subjects. So there, there wasn't anything new. It was like a typical TGIF lineup, but in the middle of the TGIF lineup, there was a Saturday morning preview. So this was probably just for all the new cartoons that were probably going to be coming up for the fall. Yeah, they did that like every year for a while. Obviously, they stopped when Saturday morning cartoons became a thing, but yeah, it was like a half hour preview, usually like a special production with interstitials and like live action people interacting with cartoons depending on the network and stuff yeah. they'd, they'd done that since like the early 80s yeah yeah i just i couldn't find out what the pe- preview was for though like okay. what cartoons they were i'm i know we have a tv guy i know we have one that has like so if we it could have been like tasmania or something i don't know <laughs> yeah, well it depends on what the network was so. yeah well it's i don't know what cartoons were on abc i can't remember he'd have like Muppet Babies and Beetlejuice and okay, some of those in there. Yeah, I know we sort of talked about cartoons before. And that was the only different thing that was going on TV. So moving on to music, I'm going to do the bottom five as of September 7th, 1991. 
and number 100 is I know we've talked about this person before but I never mentioned anything like what he's done or anything okay um it's the song love on a rooftop by a guy named Desmond Child and that was 12 weeks in the chart and it peaked at number 40 but Desmond Child was a songwriter and a producer mostly and he he's like just another I don't know vitamin C I can do like a, I can do another episode on this guy he wrote um Joan Jett and the Black Hearts I Hate Myself for Loving You he wrote Bon Jovi's You Give Love a Bad Name and Living on a Prayer huh. he did Aerosmith's Dude Looks Like a Lady and crazy he did some songs for Cher he did a couple songs for Alice Cooper he did Live in La Vida Loca for Ricky Martin wow. so I mean he's all over the place all these hidden names in the music industry yeah or hidden to the general public I guess yeah and and then they do their own solo stuff and, and their so, yeah. and their own solo stuff is not good which is interesting or maybe it's, I don't know, well, I mean, I mean, obviously personality and presentation is a big part of it, too. Yeah, but, but I mean, like, vitamin C, she was, she had, she, 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 had did, she had her own career. But I'm, like, this guy, I was like, this song's not even that great. Yeah. And then, who else? Oh, Kathy Dennis, but she, she actually had good songs, and she's written, like, she wrote, she wrote for like Britney Spears and Katy Perry and stuff like that. I wonder if like in some of these cases, you know, you hear about writers who write songs specifically for certain artists. Yeah. I wonder also if maybe some cases they write a song and then they just push it out into the ether and then the producers and artists kind of like bid for the rights to like do it, you know, like mm. Aerosmith is com- competing against Bon Jovi to do a certain song. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so he's not saving the good stuff for himself. He's like, I can get more money if I If someone else off. sang this yeah, for yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And I know, like, Billy Joel has said stuff. Like, I, a lot of the songs that I've written and performed, I don't like, have I myself can't. in mind. Oh. I actually have other people in mind, but then I just end up doing it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. But, um, I just, yeah, I, I remember we talked about him, and I'm like, who, yeah. who the hell is this? But then I actually <laughs> I actually looked him up. A writing superstar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. At number 99 is I Want to Sex You Up by Color Me Bad. That was... On the way down or on the way up? On the way down. This was 23 weeks on the chart, and it peaked at number two. Mm. Uh, number 98 is a song by Tara Kemp, Peace of My Heart. She only had one other hit that was in 1991, and that was Just Wanna Hold You Tight. I don't know if you remember that. Not too much. I know, like, we've covered Tara Kemp, or we talked about her briefly once before as well. And I think it was for the Hold You Tight song. Possibly. And this is just her other hit, and she only had this one album that was released in 1991 and this song peace of my heart and hold you hold you tight were the only ones that charted Hmm. but when i was listening to this song it sounded like the same beat as hold you tight just different lyrics 
So, I don't know. Um, number 97 is a song called I Want... This is a debut. Um, oh, the Peace of My Heart song. That was 18 weeks on the chart, and it peaked at number 7. Oh, that's pretty good. Yeah. So, number 97 is this debut song called I Wonder Why by someone by the name of Curtis Stigers. I think that's how I say his last name. But... Uh, I couldn't finish this song because I realized I hate this song because this song <laughs> was played this is a grocery store song but it was not a hit to me because I it was one of those songs that was probably repeatedly played and I just hate it so much it's either like when a song that I hear from when I was working at the grocery store it either like hits me in a good place or it hits me in a bad place where I'm like, I hate this forever. Yeah. And this song did that for me. <laughs> <laughs> but any, he's, this guy was like, he's a singer, but also saxophonist. So he was like Kenny G, but he sang. Okay. And this song was the only song, this is his first album out of many albums, I guess. And it was his self-titled debut for 1991. But this song, I Wonder Why, was the only song to hit the charts. And number 96, we talked about this person before. Um, the song is called Wishing on the Same Star, and it's by this woman named Kitty. We, we talked about her before, because she opened for... Michael Bolton while he was touring. Okay. <laughs> and, um, this song just reminds me of, like, a knockoff of Somewhere Out There from America. <laughs> I don't know if yeah. you were listening. Were you listening to a little it? Bit, yeah. It was like we're staring at the same star and the same moon. Yeah. And I'm like, what is this? Somewhere Out There? But. <laughs> <laughs> and that was four this song is four weeks on the chart and it peaked at number 86 so, so we'll move on to rankings and ratings then yeah. uh, where on your one to five star scale are you going to put company business uh, I mean I'm going to give this a two two that's high I mean I that's really... higher than I thought um, I mean, I almost gave it a one, but I actually liked the scenes where they were doing the chase scenes. Yeah, I liked the, I, I liked the locations. I liked, like I said, I liked the cinematography. I liked the directing of it. I just hated the story. I just thought it yeah, was, was mostly god awful. I was mostly bored. If they, if it was all, because I was even thinking like this, if this was like the French Connection, because. <laughs> I mean, those scenes in the French Connection were exciting. Yeah. And, like, if it was all chasing around random cities, I'd be like, oh, this is exciting. <laughs> if it was more like a Mission Impossible. Yeah, I guess. And more, and less of a... Let's Going to different locations. Talk to random old people. Yeah, for 20 minutes and not even understanding what they're really saying. Yeah, and even, I don't know, like, 
bring some of the characters back and like use them to your advantage you know like it would have been nice if they would have found a way to bring back people from that cabaret scene and use them as like cover in future scenes or you know distraction or you know what i mean like there's ways to do callbacks that might be more effective although they're in different cities but yeah whatever in my one to, i'm sorry zero to four star scale i'm gonna give it a one wow i mean i was honestly considering going down to half but i mean I don't think Hackman and Brishkoff did a bad job acting. I don't think anyone did a bad job acting. Like I said, I like the visual <laughs> side of it, but boy, is this story. Like, it moves fast, but it's just super boring. I was, I was bored to tears. More, more than most movies I watched. And this is supposed to be a thrilling one, and it's just not. Every movie's worth watching once. Would you watch this again? No. No. We'll move on to other business. Uh, if you out there want to watch Company Business as of this recording in June 2022, it's available on HBO Max, digital rental, VHS, or DVD. Check your local listings because that could change. You can listen to us on all of your major podcasting platforms. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends. You can email us at 1991movierewind at gmail.com. Of course, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd, and YouTube. Just search 1991movierewind or go to 1991movierewind.com for the full list of movies along with show notes and more. Next week in our Buddy Movie Month, we're going to be watching Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. That's available on HBO Max, Cinemax, Digital Rental, VHS DVD. We will see you then.